Please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, chapter 12. We'll be picking up our study now back in the Gospel of Matthew. We took a couple of weeks off, but uh, today, back into our study, we'll be picking up in verses 38 through the end of the chapter. I've entitled today's message, Truth for a Generation. Truth for a Generation. Now, we know that the Lord works in each and every life individually. We know that ultimately we all must give an account of our life before the Lord. But not only does the Lord work in an individual's life, he also works in a nation and a people group and sometimes even with a generation. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We we remember Noah's generation. The Bible says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so he called Noah and the Lord said to Noah, come unto the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. God found a man, a family that he could work with even in a corrupt generation. God also looks in, see, into seeing even future works within generations. You'll remember his promise to Abraham. He promised that he would be giving Abraham a promised land, but that it would not be for Abraham's time, but for a future generation. He said in Genesis 15 and verse 16, but in the fourth generation, speaking of Abraham's lineage, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Interesting. God says, look, the people in the land right now, their their sins have not yet filled up to full measure. So I'm being patient. I'm being gracious with them. But there will come a time in generations to come when I will have to remove them from the land. And that's when I will be bringing your family, Abraham, the fourth generation from now. I'll be bringing your people into the promised land. God seeing and working generationally. We know that that generation that came into the promised land was led by Joshua. And then after Joshua brought the people into the land, the next generation rose up. And the book of Judges tells us that another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. And what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 12 is Jesus speaking to his generation, Jesus speaking into the heart of the of the people of the nation of Israel and their 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 uh, their generation is being represented by these religious leaders, the Pharisees, and Jesus has already begun to contend with them. You remember earlier in chapter 12 that after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, that the Pharisees gathered together and wanted to kill Jesus. This is a whole new level of antagonism of the culture and the religious leaders coming against Christ and his claims to be Messiah. In verse 22 of chapter 12, Jesus cast out the demon uh, that was causing a man to be blind and mute. And the Pharisees said, well, he's doing that under the power of demons. And Jesus, of course, corrected them and said, how can I cast out demons if I myself am operating under the power of demons Satan's even Satan's kingdom is not divided against itself. And he warned them that that of this rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness in their generation and what it would cost them. It would bring them to a place of judgment. 
And these religious leaders, they represent something of the spiritual condition of the nation at that time. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that would fulfill their expectations and cater to their pride and self-righteousness. How dangerous it is when a nation or a generation as a whole begin to reject God, begin to reject his offer of salvation through his son Jesus, And when a generation loses its fear of God, it loses its kind of moral anchor on God and his truth. I can't help but wonder about our own generation and where we are and and what's happening in our own time. The book of Romans speaks to, uh, to generations and people groups. It says that although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's possible that a a people and a generation can rise up and begin to simply move away from the foundations that God may have had in their nation, even just a generation or two before. Jesus, in Matthew 12, now begins to confront his generation and the national rejection of him as their Savior and Messiah. A number of things we can identify that Jesus brings to light concerning this generation. The first thing we notice is that it is a generation unwilling to believe. A generation unwilling to believe. Look with me there in your Bibles beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they come to Jesus and they say, you know what, perform a sign, convince us in some way, prove to us that you are truly the Messiah. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you know, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. I mean, hadn't they already seen enough signs? Hadn't they already witnessed the miracles? Hadn't they already witnessed his power over demons and his authority in the earth? These were not men coming to, coming to find reasons to believe. These were men coming to find reasons to disbelieve, to disprove his claim. They wanted to try and, and you know, challenge him in a way that he would not be able to respond, and therefore they could justify their unbelief. Their hearts were determined not to believe. And this is a dangerous place for a people to come to. Jesus refuses them. He will not dance to their tune. One commentator puts it this way. By accommodating them, he would have catered to their unbelief and allowed them to set the standards for faith. No matter what miracle he performed, he would not have pleased them. And that's just the truth. No matter what God did, they were not going to be happy. No matter how Jesus responded, they would find some reason to to reject him. God is not in the business of bending himself to satisfy the whims of evil people who have no relationship to him. 
They don't, you don't get to come and say, okay, God, prove yourself to me. If you're really God, if you're really good, then I, I want you to kind of meet a few criteria for me. Well, God doesn't perform on those terms. Jesus said no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign that Jesus would, would be giving these, this generation would be the sign of his resurrection. You remember Jonah. Jonah was that reluctant prophet. He was called to go and preach to a, an Assyrian uh, city called Nineveh. Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. He wanted God to judge them. He didn't want to go there and have God show any mercy to them. So he headed in the other direction. Well, God arranged an encounter for him. You'll remember out on the sea, he was swallowed up by a whale after they threw him overboard. And so he spent three nights in that fish. And so Jesus said, in the same way, I, the Son of Man, will spend three nights in the earth. There is one sign yet to come, you unbelieving generation. It will be the death and resurrection. Of Jesus himself. But listen, even in resurrection, they would not believe. You remember the story Jesus told about Lazarus and a certain rich man who had died and gone to Hades. And there seemed to be a separation there in Hades. Lazarus was in a place of comfort with Abraham. But the rich man, he was in a place of torment and and despair, and he, he called out to Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus over to, to dip, my, you know, dip some water my way. I, I'm just suffering over here. And, and Abraham said, no, there's a chasm between. We cannot cross over. And he said, well, then at least let me go back. Let me come back from the dead and go warn my five brothers, lest they end up here like I did. Certainly, if I rise from the dead, they'll believe my testimony. And Abraham said, no, if they do not fear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And this is the actual truth that took place. Those same Pharisees, after they found out the tomb was empty, they looked for a way to provide a cover story. Even in the face of resurrection, they refused to believe. And here's the spiritual principle. If you don't believe the truth that God has already shown you, neither will you believe any future truth. And not only that, God will not show you more truth if you're not faithful with the truth that you have. Maybe you've heard this. I know that I have. Many people say, you know, if, if I could just see a real miracle, if God would just really show me a, a real true miracle, I'm sure that I would believe. But here we find a generation where Jesus performed miracle after miracle, and they, they still refuse to believe. Where is the power of God for salvation? Is it in the performing of miracles or is it in the message of the gospel? The truth of God's love, the truth of God sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead. Paul said that the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's not the working of miracles. That might be entertaining, that might be awe-inspiring, that might even get people curious, but ultimately the real conversion comes when people believe the truth of the message concerning Jesus Christ. The second thing we notice about this generation, they were a generation unwilling to repent. 
unwilling to acknowledge their sin and to turn from it, unwilling to change, unwilling to repent. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. We just spoke of Jonah. He did eventually find his way to Nineveh. After he came out of the, 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 the whale, he ended up obeying God and he went and he preached to the nation of Nineveh. And when they heard the message, guess what? They believed it and they changed. They repented. In fact, they humbled themselves in, in repentance. This is a, a pagan, ungodly people and culture. These were the Assyrians. These were not God's people. This was not part of Israel. And yet, even they, when they heard the warning of God's prophet, believed and repented. The king of Nineveh, when he heard, when, when he heard Jonah's message, he proclaimed a decree. In Jonah 3 and verse 8, it says that he put out this decree, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They repented. They changed their course and God relented and spared them. And Jesus said, listen, a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a reluctant preacher who wanted God to judge the Ninevites. Jesus was a loving savior who came in love and grace to his own people to save and rescue them. Jesus came willingly to preach not only a message of salvation from judgment, but a message of grace and eternal life with the Lord, resurrection and eternity. A greater message delivered by a much greater messenger. And yet they did not repent. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, guys, when it's all over and you stand before God, those men from Nineveh are going to be there. And they're going to say, guys, you should have listened. You should have changed. You should have repented from your sin. We did. When Jonah came and told us that God was, was undisplaced, we repented. We turned from the way in which we were going. You, you, you were God's people. You were God's nation. Jesus himself came to you and you would not change. You would not repent. You were determined to go and continue in your own way. John 3.19 says, This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Today, I think of our generation. I think of what's going on in our own culture. It seems to me we have a generation that wants to justify their lifestyle rather than change. It seems we, instead of acknowledging and turning from sin, uh, we want to say that we have no sin. But 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 addresses that mindset. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to be merciful. God wants to be gracious, but he, he will not forgive a heart that refuses to acknowledge God's law, God's truth, God's, God's holiness. But to the heart that's willing to confess, to the heart that's willing to acknowledge, God is willing to forgive. He's faithful and just and wanting to do so. Do you want to change? 
Or do you just want to justify? Do you, do you want to confess? Or do you want to defend and deflect? God's looking for honest and sincere hearts. I don't know about you, but I need forgiveness on a pretty regular basis. I'm, I'm, I want to align my heart with the psalmist who said, Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. A heart that's repentive is a heart that's willing to yield and align itself with the Lord's truth, not resisting and deflecting and defending and as they were in Jesus's day. And so we see so much of it even in our own time. It's time for us to turn from our own way and turn to Jesus. The third thing I see here in this generation that Jesus calls out is it is a generation unwilling to listen, unwilling to listen or hear the wisdom of, of Christ and the Lord. Look at verse 42. Jesus says this, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is talking about the queen of the south, also known as the queen of Sheba. She was an ungodly queen, but she was a seeker of truth. She came up from Arabia to hear the wisdom of Solomon. His, his reputation had gone far and wide, and, and she wanted to see if these things were true. She wanted to see if this man with a divine wisdom really existed. So she came for herself to see. She wanted to know if these things could be true. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, it tells us her response after she came and witnessed God's favor upon Solomon and heard him speak and, and teach of, of, of the Lord's wisdom. She said, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you. When she saw the wit and heard and witnessed the favor of God and the blessing of God on this man Solomon, her heart yielded and said, Blessed be the Lord who has given you this favor. But someone greater than Solomon was there in Jesus' generation. The one who gave Solomon his wisdom was there in the flesh, Jesus himself. The one whom the Bible says is the beginning and the end. The one that the scriptures tell us that there's nothing that's been made except by what he has made. The Alpha, the Omega, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, someone far greater than Solomon. And yet they rejected him. This ungodly queen came to hear and know the wisdom of Solomon, but his own people refused to listen to Jesus. Instead, they debated him. Instead, they rejected him. Instead, they, they didn't want to listen to his wisdom and truth. They tried to find out ways to try and trick him and catch him and dispute him. And I wonder today, I wonder today, what is the appetite for the truth and the wisdom that comes from God? I've got to be honest, I am surprised at what some people are willing to listen to and put their trust in today, aren't you? I don't want to go into some of the crazy things that people seem to think is a good idea. But if you're out talking to people, you know, oh, yeah, I read this. Oh, I heard this. Oh, I, they, they say this. 
and all of this, you know, man's kind of wisdom and insight on any, everything from, you know, your love life to raising children to health and, and diet and all of that. And, and people are just fascinated and just really. But, but when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to the truth of God's wisdom and revelation, there seems to be just no appetite and no real biblical kind of aptitude in really discerning the truth, the Bible. Jesus' words himself. Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Looking to hear and, and discern. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you'd had opportunity to sit in Solomon's court and just let him, let him, listen to him talk and share wisdom? How much more to be there at the feet of Jesus and to discern the wisdom of the ages coming from the rock of ages. Oh, they... they They missed such an opportunity. Uh, The book of Ephesians tells us, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Are you listening to the Lord? Are you interested in the mind of God? Are you hiding his word in your heart? Are you listening to the voice of God in your life? Are you studying the word? Are 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 you really trying to get a hold of the wisdom that is from above? These are this is the hunger that I believe God desires in his people. This was a generation that was not interested in listening. Fourthly, we see that this is a generation of empty hearts, a generation of empty hearts. Look with me, verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Jesus begins to speak about the spirit world and and the activity of demons. But we must realize that Jesus is not really trying to give a lesson on demonology here. He's using it as an illustration to talk about the condition of the hearts in his generation. We can see some insight into the spiritual world. Certainly Jesus would be speaking truthfully of these things. Clearly we see that that there is such a thing as a spirit world. Jesus clearly did believe in demons and spoke of them and cast them out and took authority over them. And we see here that, that these demons, they, they look to influence men. It says seeking rest. Apparently they long to actually possess and reside in one's life. Now, not every problem uh, that goes on in people's lives is the result of demon possession. But surely there are some. But not only that, these demons look to progressively dominate and make worse the state of a man. It says that that he comes back. The one demon who left comes back and brings others more wicked than himself. But we also see that for them to really enter and possess and begin to dominate and control the will of a person, they need an empty house to reside in. Now, this disqualifies Christians from being demon possessed because a Christian, a true believer, has been sealed and is being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When a demon comes to a Christian, he doesn't find an empty house. 
He finds a house that's inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. And believe me, he's not interested in being in there with the Holy Spirit, nor can he be. Now, can demons affect Christian lives? Yes. Paul said, you know, a a thorn in the flesh was given unto me, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet to hinder me. He was not possessed by the demon, but he was troubled by spiritual forces. Paul would say we don't war against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in high places. So there is definitely spiritual warfare in a believer's life, but not spirit, not demonic possession. But the key to understanding what Jesus is trying to say here is in verse 45 when he says, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. He's really trying to warn a generation about their spiritual condition. He's using this illustration of demonic activity to illustrate a deeper point. The religious leaders, you see, of his day, they had an outward conformance. We might call it a swept and put in order house, an outward reformation, but not the inward transformation. Their house remained empty. They had the ministry of John the Baptist who had prepared the way. Uh, and, And yet the hearts of the people did not believe on Jesus. They had reformation without relationship. They had the opportunity to receive Christ there that God had prepared the way for them. He brought the witness and the testimony, but they would not embrace him into the heart. And in that for that reason, Jesus said the last state of that man is worse than the first. You see, when you come to a place of opportunity to receive Christ and you determine that you don't need Christ, You think that your house is already in order. You imagine yourself to be sufficient without Christ. That's a worse condition than the person who knows he needs Christ. The person who is having the the demonic kind of trouble and, and activity and bondage in his life and he knows he needs saving. The one who doesn't realize his need of salvation is actually more blind than the one who knows. Thinking they were righteous, they rejected Christ And became even worse. Jesus would say this. If the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness. Listen to this commentary on this passage. It is not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses. But their hearts were empty. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration, the receiving of Christ into the heart. And I think even of our culture and generation today, listen, it's more than just coming to church. It's more than just living a moral life among Christian friends. It's more than being a nice person. You've got to become a new creation. You've got to receive Christ into your heart. It's in the heart that Jesus does the work. That's where the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is takes place, not just in kind of living in a a pseudo decent kind of nice Christian conforming way. Of course, we want God to conform our lives, but there's got to be something going on within. That's the real transformation. Jesus said in Revelation three and verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus wants to live in your heart. 
Jesus wants to come and reside with you. He wants relationship, not not religion, not outward conformance, but inward relationship and transformation. The fifth and final thing I see here concerning Jesus' comments to to the generation is we see that this was a generation with a remnant of faithful disciples. Even in this troubled generation, we see a remnant of faithful disciples. This is a a word of hope for us. Look with me, verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So his family comes. We know from the other Gospels that that some of Jesus's natural brothers were, were not really believers in him. And you almost get the sense that they're kind of coming. He's getting himself into trouble with the religious leaders. And so they're kind of coming to bring him home. Maybe we got to get him out of this ministry Messiah kind of mindset. We need to things are getting out of out of hand here. He's going to get himself into some real trouble. So they come and they, they kind of want to speak to him. They want to privately have a meeting with him. And they use their, you know, their natural relationship to kind of, you know, bring uh, their priorities before him. Now, Jesus does not disrespect his physical family. We know that Jesus had great regard for his mother and his brothers. But he also takes the time to identify who his true family is. It's not, it's not just the physical family. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual family. These are the brothers and sisters that I will live with forever. These are the ones that God has brought in, adopted into the family. These are my disciples. These are the ones doing the will of my father in heaven. He puts the priority on those relationships. And he he, he points out that even in this generation that he is really rebuking and correcting, he has found faithful disciples. There is a remnant of of those who are truly embracing him and living for him. And I believe that speaks a word of hope to us. You know, it seems that in every generation, the Lord has a remnant. The Lord still has a harvest that he's willing and desiring to bring in, a revival among those who turn to Jesus. What will be the testimony of our generation? What's going on in our time? Are we, where, where are we headed spiritually? I believe that nationally, quite frankly, we may be on a track that will lead to both discipline and judgment from God. But I believe spiritually, God is using the, the time that we're experiencing in this generation to actually awaken and stir up his disciples, his brothers and sisters, his true followers And this gives us a great opportunity. And I believe that we are on a a dual track. Yes, there is kind of an impending judgment if we continue to reject God and, and go against God in a national generational way. But there is also a spiritual track wherein God is using those troubled times to bring in a harvest of souls 
by the, by the power of the gospel. Let me tell you something. The Roman Empire was no picnic for the Christian faith. The Roman Empire was not aligned with God's moral code and laws. And yet, God used that generation to turn the world upside down. That's the generation that the church was birthed in. God knows how to save even in the midst of turmoil. God knows how to rescue. God knows how to set the stage for a great work of spiritual awakening. That's my prayer. That even in this generation, Jesus was preparing those disciples. These were the guys that were going to bring revival into the, not only the nation of Israel, but to the world. What is God up to in our generation? My sense is that he's awakening his disciples and that we might be faithful to, to allow him to use us in the way that he desires, even in these troubled times. God is not finished. God is, you are here for such a time as this. This is your generation. He's placed you and I here for this time. And I believe that he wants to shine brightly through our lives. I believe that he has a great work still to do in our generation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this example that we find in Jesus confronting his generation. And Lord, we too live in a, we would have to say, a troubled generation, Lord. We're not, we're not living in a, in a, time, in a time when, when people are, are moving closer to God. We're not living in a culture that is moving in step with God. We seem to be living in a time when people are moving away. And yet, Lord, you have a remnant. Yet, Lord, you have disciples, those that are doing the will of the Heavenly Father. And that's the, that's the true test, Lord, is our, is our life producing the fruit of your will and purpose in the earth. God, help us as a church, help us as a people, help us to be faithful to our generation. And as our heads are bowed and we close today in prayer, I do want to give opportunity for anyone that might be here that needs to respond to the Lord. And it may be that you are here today and you do not have that personal relationship that I've been talking about with Jesus. Maybe you have something of an outward conformance. Maybe you're even, you know, a pretty decent person. But there's not been that true conversion in your heart. You've never invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. But he's speaking to you today. You, you hear that knocking. As Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And, and you hear his knock on your heart today. And you're ready to open up your heart and allow him to come in and dine with you. I'd love to pray with you today if you want to receive Christ for the first time. Maybe you're here today and you need to rededicate your life. Listen, if you're honest, may, maybe you would say, you know what, Pastor? I'm living more like the generation around me than I am the, the man, the woman God's called me to be from within. I've really lost my way. I've been, I'm more conforming to the world than I am really a disciple of Jesus. I need to come back to my faith. I need to come back and allow the Lord to refresh my heart and bring me back into faithful relationship with Him. I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. And I, I need the Lord to to strengthen me again. I want to rededicate, recommit my heart to him today. I'd love to pray for you too. So if you're here today, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time or you want to rededicate, recommit your life, 
I would ask you to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me see you, and I'll pray for you. Anybody here today, the Lord speaking to you? I bless you. One hand there in the center. Anybody else? The Lord speaking to your heart. We're here on my left side there. Any others? He's knocking on your heart. He's wanting to move in or he's wanting you to come home. Anybody else before I pray? Just before I pray, anyone else? So, Lord, Lord, these hearts responding to you today, I pray that you would meet them. I pray that, Jesus, you would come into their heart and dine with them, even in this moment, that you would embrace them, that they would acknowledge and confess before you, Jesus, forgive me. I'm not here to defend. I'm not trying to justify. I just need you to cleanse me today. And I, I confess before you. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. And that's where I'm putting my trust in the power and the message of the gospel. And so, God, not only cleansing, but also, Lord, begin to lead me and guide me in the life that you've called me to in this generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.